welcome to Genesis. We're thrilled that you're here. As Paul said, my name is Dan, and I am the groups and outreach pastor here. And basically what that means is I get to do a lot of, get to do a lot of stuff. And today, we get to talk about Acts chapter 8 together. And before we get into that, um, I think it's really important that we look back over the first seven chapters real quick, because Acts chapter 8 is a turning point. Not just in Luke's account of what the church is, of what's going on in the church, but in all of church history, really. But before we get, before we even do that, I think it's really important that we pause for a moment and pray. Because we just sang about the fact that the Holy Spirit is here among us. And I think it's just never a bad idea to acknowledge that and to give him the space that he needs and to ask him to do what he alone can do. So will you pray with me? God Almighty, thank you for being with us today for being in this space with us. And so God, I pray that as we look to your word today in Acts chapter eight, that you will clear away distractions from our hearts, from our minds, and, um, and that your word will accomplish what you said it to do. Your old, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah tells us that your word will not return void. And so God, we, we trust that today, asking that you will do the work in our lives that you wanna do. God, we love you and we trust you. It's in your name we pray, amen. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can go ahead and make your way to Acts chapter eight. And while you're doing that, I wanna give you a, hit some highlights from the first seven chapters. Because like I already said, chapter eight is a significant turning point in the whole book. And so if you remember back to Acts chapter one, Jesus was still walking the earth. He was still meeting with his followers, but what, before he left and ascended to take his rightful place on the throne at the right hand of God, he said, hey, I want you all to wait in Jerusalem. And I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And at that point, you're going to become my witnesses in Jerusalem and in other places and even to the ends of the earth. And so then then he leaves. And right after that, we see the church doing exactly that and doing what Paul said. They gathered together, they worshiped, they prayed. And on one day, as 120 of them were gathered together praying, the Holy Spirit descends. And in what looked like tongues of fire settling on each person, the world changed. And from that point forward, the, uh, the people in Jerusalem started to hear stories about Jesus as the Messiah, and loads of people came to faith. And just to give you a, a little insight into how my brain works, it works in metaphors and pictures. And so the metaphor, the picture I want you to hold on to for Acts chapter 2 is the striking of a match, because it was fast, it was instant, it was bright, and it burned real hot. That's what we see as the church expands in these early chapters of the book. And then in the very next chapter, we see the apostles starting to do the exact same miracles that Jesus had done as he walked the earth. And that starts to draw some unwanted, perhaps some perhaps unwanted attention from the Jewish leadership at the time. And so Acts chapter four is the very beginning of the persecution of the church. And it starts small. It starts with Peter and John being imprisoned for healing a man in Jesus' name and then teaching in Jesus' name. And so if Acts chapter two is the striking of a match, Acts chapter four is the lighting of a fuse. And I say it's the lighting of a fuse because across chapters four, uh, four, five, and seven, the persecution of the church just grows in its intensity to the point that at the very end of chapter seven, like we saw last week, a man named Stephen is stoned to death for defending his faith in Jesus. And that is where we find ourselves. That's where Luke takes us today. And so if Acts chapter seven is the inevitable explosion that comes from that lighting of the fuse in chapter four, Acts chapter eight is the shockwave 
that that explosion sends out. And so Luke tells us in Acts 8 verse 1 what happens right after Stephen's death. On that day, the very day, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now, there are a few things I want to point out about these verses because Luke, excuse me, Luke tells us, perhaps unknowing that this was going to be a turning point in church history, he does tell us it's a turning point in the city of Jerusalem. Because up until this point, it had been relatively safe to be a follower of Jesus. And while their numbers were growing and people respected them, they were, they were relatively safe. Yes, some of them had been flogged, but everybody was still alive. But when this ruling Jewish leadership decides to kill Stephen for defending his faith, it blows the gates wide open for widespread persecution throughout the entire city. To the point that everyone, all the believers, except for the apostles, flee from the city. And thousands of people become religious refugees instantaneously. And by pointing out that the apostles were the ones who stayed, Luke tells us that the people who left were just ordinary people. They weren't the ones who had walked right alongside Jesus. They were the ones who heard the story later, who came to faith in Christ at the teaching of the apostles And as they came to faith, they were also filled with the Holy Spirit. And as these families become religious refugees in other cities, what we ultimately see is that they are fulfilling what Jesus said would happen in chapter one, verse eight, when he said, but you will receive my, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the beginning of Acts chapter 8 is the right side of that comma after Jerusalem. We are right at a turning point in this story. And what Luke wants us to see here is that as this persecution breaks out, it's all of a sudden no longer safe to be a follower of Jesus. But God in his sovereignty sends out his followers like seed among fertile soil. And Luke does this by using a specific word that's translated as scattered. It's the Greek word diasperason. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to say it. Uh, But it sounds like disperse. So it makes sense that it would be translated as scattered. But that Greek word carries the specific meaning of being scattered, of seed being scattered and planted. So in the wake of this tragedy with Stephen... We see God accomplishing his purpose by sending out his followers as seed who will bear much fruit, to borrow a phrase from Jesus. But in verse 3, Luke introduces us again to this guy named Saul. And Saul is about to become a very major character throughout the rest of the book. We're going to see a lot of him in in the coming weeks. But what we see right here is that Luke paints a terrible terrible picture of Saul. Like he paints this picture of a guy who is just completely filled with and controlled and driven by his rage. And he does this by when, um, by, by the way that he says he began to destroy the church. Luke is describing the act of somebody or the act of a wild animal, excuse me, violently tearing apart its prey. It's 
very graphic language that Luke is using here. And I think all of us would agree that if somebody was li- like that was operating in the neighborhoods where you and I live, we would do the same as all of these followers who flee the city. But look at what Luke tells us in verse 4 about how these refugees go about fleeing the city. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And I need to make it clear that Luke's not saying that they did what I'm doing right now. Like there was no platform. What he's suggesting is that as these people were scattered to other cities, they lived out their faith in a way that reflected Jesus and his character into any community where they landed. And they did this as they just went about their daily business. And I think that's important for you and I to hold on to because there are a lot of people in the wider church today who are waiting for a moment to be sent. They're waiting for God to do something dramatic in their lives where he tells them, I want you to go to this country and tell those people about your faith. Or they're waiting for a moment where God shows up and says, hey, I want you to quit your job in this office. I want you to no longer be a teacher. I don't want you to to work in restaurants. I want you to be a pastor. But that's not what God is, that's not what is happening here. And that's not what, what God wants for all of us. What Luke is telling us and what we need to hold on to is the fact that these people weren't going somewhere to preach the word. They were going because they feared for their lives and the lives of their families. But wherever they went, they preached the word. And so maybe that's what you, some, you or I or some of us need to be reminded of today. The fact that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have given your heart to Jesus and you have submitted to his lordship, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And as you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you have all that you need to live a life of faithful witness wherever you already are. You have the power of the Holy Spirit living in you and the story of what God has done and is doing in your life. And sometimes that's all it takes for the Holy Spirit to grab onto another person's heart, to bring them into relationship, into freedom in Christ. And so Luke is telling us that despite the fact that they were being hunted, they were not hiding. They were living their faith out in bold and exciting ways in new communities wherever they landed. And as Luke tells us about this, he zooms in on one particular person named Philip. Look at verse five. He says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Now you might remember Philip from chapter six. Philip, along with Stephen, who was stoned at the end of chapter seven, were two of the seven guys who were selected to care for widows in the church. And what we see Philip do as he arrives in the Samaritan city is he starts living out his faith. He starts doing exactly what he was doing in Jerusalem, meeting with other believers and praying and worshiping with other believers and caring for the community. And as he does this, it starts to bring restoration to people's lives and to the community as a whole as the Holy Spirit works through Philip and whatever other believers were there. And as you can imagine, people start noticing. And the result of his teaching and his miracles led to great joy breaking out in the city. And what we need to remember 
is that whenever we see people authentically respond to the gospel of Jesus, that is a reason for you and I to exhibit great joy because it means that more people are being set free and that the body of church, the body of Christ and his church are growing. And I say that this is a turning point in the book of Acts because up until now, only Jewish people had come to faith in Jesus. But as Philip shows up, as Philip shows up in this Samaritan city as a religious refugee, the gospel, uh, and other people start coming to faith, this shows us that the gospel of Jesus is for all people. And as this Samaritan city responds to what Philip is preaching and what he's showing them, Luke draws our attention to one person. His name is Simon. Look at verse nine. He says, now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. This is the part of the story where it starts to get a little bit odd, right? Like we, he, we see sorcerers mentioned all throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's a bit weird because Luke almost just like, mentions it in passing as if he's not going to say anything else about it. But what he does tell us is that Simon, through his acts of deception, were, had gained um, loads of affluence and loads of influence throughout the city to the point that people considered him a channel of divine power. And 2,000 years removed from this, it's easy for us to just kind of brush this off as, um, as if the people of this city had a very primitive understanding of how the world works and that Simon was really good with sleight of hand. But that's, there's far more to Simon than just that. Because like I said, sorcerers, are, they, they show up in the Old Testament, they show up in the New Testament. And what we're seeing here, what we saw, what history a historical account shows us that these sorcerers, they did perform uh, wondrous works and they performed exorcisms and healings. But the power by which they did these things was not the power of God. It was, it was entirely power from Satan. And Pastor J.D. Greer, I think, does a great job describing Simon, but also bringing this into our own cultural context when he says, Simon's magic was a mixture of genuine scientific knowledge about medicine, astronomy, and math plus superstition about amulets, charms, dream interpretation, and horoscopes, all combined with sleight of hand. In our modern era, this would be the equivalent of people who read horoscopes and use crystals. This is not stuff that was just active and present in ancient times. Yes, it happened a lot then, but it still happens now. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to watch the Harry Potter movies. Like my family and I, we think they're very entertaining but we cannot take this kind of stuff lightly. I mean, scripture makes it abundantly clear that as followers of the one true God, we should not engage in occult spiritual practices because they bring no honor and glory to God and they completely contradict the teachings of the Bible. Look at what Moses says to the Israelites in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. 
Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist or consults the dead. The nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. God makes it explicitly clear. His people, as they are about to enter the land that he promised to their ancestor Abraham, are not to engage in any of these things. This is a group of people who just spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt, where they saw occult practices and worship of false gods as normal, everyday acts. And as they're on the verge of entering the land that he has promised them, that he's prepared for them, he says, hey, you are to act nothing like the Egyptians and you are to act nothing like the people that I'm going to drive out of this land. And the reason I bring all of this up is because what we see in Simon is the adoption of those pagan and occult practices. Simon was not just some street magician who was really good at card tricks. Simon was actively engaged in pagan rituals through the power of Satan that brought glory to Simon alone. And this is not something that we should take lightly. We have a very real and very active enemy who would love to lure us away from the one true source of salvation. And I don't think anybody in the wider church is on the verge of thinking that child sacrifice is okay, like we just read in Deuteronomy, because it's obviously not. But there are people in the wider church today who think that things like using crystals, aura cleansing, horoscopes, astrology, um, manipulating energies, or reading tarot cards are harmless acts. These things are far from harmless. They are gateways into darkness that Satan wants to use to lure us away from the one true God who is our only source of salvation. The first time I ever experienced any of this sort of darkness was in the spring of 2006. And uh, most of you probably remember that in the fall of 2005, Hurricane Katrina nearly destroyed the city of New Orleans. Well, in the spring of 2006, my wife Kristen and I, along with some other students from the college we attended, spent about a week in New Orleans um, helping in some aid uh, alongside a pastor who had just kind of set up shop who was from the area. And towards the end of the week, we, we, this whole group of us, we spent a night in the French Quarter. We went out to dinner, and then after dinner, we all had some time to explore. So Kristen and I and a couple friends, we just start walking around the French Quarter, um, and like we listened to some really good jazz on random corners, just little quartets. We got some really good coffee from Cafe Du Monde, but as we were walking around, um, I decided, to, hey, let's just cut through this alley real quick and, and let's go that way. Well, this alley we cut through put us out right in front of this church. It was that alley on the right side of the church. And if you're not familiar, this is the St. Louis Cathedral in New Orleans. It looks beautiful. But um, at, I don't know, 10 o'clock at night or so, as we stepped in front of the church, all four of us were hit with a nearly indescribable sense of heaviness and darkness. Because as we stepped in front of this church, there was a woman who was performing a tarot card reading about 50 feet away, um, off to our left. And as we stepped in front of the church, she sat bolt upright, 
turned towards us and gave us one of the most hateful, blank, yet intense stares I've ever seen in my entire life. And despite the fact that this area was very well lit, there is a palpable sense of darkness in the area. And so as the four of us make our way away from this area, we see more people engaging in the same practices who do the exact same thing as this woman. They all sat up, they all turned, they all stared. And I say this not to scare and not to give Satan more credit than he deserves, but to highlight the fact that this is real. And that if you are a follower of Jesus and you have submitted to his lordship, you need to be aware that there is a very active enemy who will use any tactics that he possibly can to, to lure us away. And this is why it's so important that we focus on abiding in Christ. Because as we abide, then we can weigh every new idea, every philosophy against scripture in order to reject what is evil and hold on to what is good, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. Because the reason all of this stuff is wrong is because it is an attempt to mimic God. And at the same time, it's an attempt to manipulate his creation with power and authority that belong to God alone. And to think that we can just dabble in these things or just experiment with bits and pieces is to allow Satan to whisper into our ears just like he did to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. And this is the kind of stuff that Simon was practicing in this city. And it brought him great affluence and loads of influence, according to Luke. But then this religious refugee shows up and starts living a very different life. And let's look at how the city responds in verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. You see, all of the people of this city, from the least to the greatest, had, paid, had given all of their attention to Simon. But this religious refugee who starts talking about a crucified Jewish carpenter that came back to life ends up drawing all of this attention away from Simon. And as people start to respond, all of a sudden, the scattered seed of God's word starts to bring about the fruit that he intended. More people being set free from slavery to sin. And even Simon responds and gets baptized. But the way Luke writes here, he makes sure to point out that Simon was preoccupied with the miracles that Philip performed. And so as more and more people throughout this Samaritan city start to come to faith in Jesus, news makes its way back to Jerusalem and where the apostles think, hey, we need to go check this out and just make sure that everything that we taught is what they're teaching and what they're responding to. And this is not an issue of not trusting Philip. What this is, is this is an issue of the fact that there was nearly 800 years of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, as one person told me this week, Samaritans and Jews got along like toothpaste and orange juice, 
right? Like that's how well they got along. Not at all. Thank you to the couple of people who laughed. I thought it was really funny when I heard it, but it's true. Like that's how well these groups got along. They absolutely hated each other. And so in order to maintain unity in this growing church, Peter and John, who had walked with Jesus, decide to go to the, to the Samaritan city and check out and make sure that what they're responding to is exactly what Jesus gave them to give to other people. And that's what they find is that Philip hasn't changed the message. Just this Samaritan city responded to the exact same message that Philip responded to, that Jesus is the Messiah and there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And almost, um, and so as in the, uh, so what this tells us is that all it takes to receive salvation is to acknowledge our, repent of our sinful and rebellious ways before God, believe in our hearts that Jesus is in fact the Messiah and submit to his Lordship. There's no extra steps. There's no money to give and there are no rituals to perform. All it takes is a, acknowledging that we have lived contrary to what God calls us to. And, and because of his love and his mercy, accept the grace that's offered to us through Jesus alone. I love the way New Testament professor John Paul Hill says, says that he says, the gospel is the great equalizer. In the gospel, there are no half breeds, no physical rejects, no places for human prejudices. And as exclusive, as inclusive as the gospel is, because it really is for all people, it is equally exclusive in the truth that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And so after confirming that the Samaritan city was responding to the gospel that Jesus had given the apostles to spread, Peter and John lay their hands on these new believers and pray. And that's when they receive the Holy Spirit. And one thing I just want to make a quick note about, I love the way that this happens, is that John, as he followed Jesus, once, offered, once asked to pray to call fire down on a Samaritan village that would not welcome them. And now, just a few years later, He's praying over these Samaritan believers, welcoming them into the body of Christ. What a great picture of how an intimate relationship with Jesus can change our hearts towards people that we've despised or people we've disagreed with for years. But look at what, as, as Peter and John pray over these, these new believers, Simon enters the scene once again, and Luke writes, when Simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying on of the hands of the apostles, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, Luke makes crystal clear the focus and the intention of Simon's heart, greater power and greater influence. Because Simon, in his pride, offered to buy the, the ability to give the Holy Spirit to other people. He didn't ask for the presence of the Holy Spirit in his own life. He just wanted the ability to give it to others just to add to his bag of tricks. And if actions speak louder than words, this shouts that Simon was far more concerned with his position in front of people than he was his posture before God. And in response to this request, 
Peter speaks very directly and rather harshly when he says, you and your money can die. You have no place in this ministry and your heart is not right before God because you are full of bitter envy. But Peter also tells them how to be made right with God. He says, go and pray and repent so that God will forgive you. But Simon's response to being told to go and pray is this in verse 24. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. And what we see in Simon's response right here is something that we see a lot of today. A willingness to accept Jesus as our savior without a willingness to submit to his total lordship. And verse 24 shows us that Simon was only concerned with avoiding punishment instead of embracing a life-giving relationship with Jesus. And so in this first half of Acts chapter 8, Luke has presented us with two contrasting characters. He's shown us Simon, who saw influence over intimacy, influence over other people, more than he saw intimacy with God. His influence, status, and affluence were idols that he wanted to just add Jesus to. But on the other hand, Luke also highlights Philip, who is a picture of what intimacy with God leads to. It leads to a gospel effective life in which it's a life that does nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility values others above ourselves. To paraphrase Philippians chapter two. Because you see, coming to faith in Christ is, it's a big step. And I love the way British pastor Rico Tice talks about this. He says, to become a Christian is neither convenient nor comfortable. It means no longer living for ourselves, but for Jesus. It means trusting and relying on Jesus completely. And so if you get nothing else from this first half of Acts chapter eight, I want you to understand that God is after your heart and he will not, he will not share it with anything else. When you come to faith in Jesus, your identity is no longer found in your job title, your tax bracket, your retirement fund, your gender, your sexuality, your accomplishments, or anything that you choose. When you come to faith in Christ and you submit your life to his lordship, your identity and my identity are found in Christ alone. But we live in the midst of a culture that tells, tells us to find our identity in other places. It tells us to build idols on our accomplishments and the number of people over whom we have influence or anything else that we choose. But the truth of the matter is that there is only one place where we can place our hope, where we can place our trust, and where we can place our faith that really matter. Look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16. He says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus makes it clear that 99% is not good enough. When it comes to our faith in Jesus, there are no half measures. You can't buy your way in but it does require that you give him everything. And that's what Simon seems to be unwilling to do. Because Luke doesn't give us the end of Simon's story. 
And I think by leaving Simon's story right where he left it, it forces you and me to wrestle with this question of, have I given Lord, have I given every, uh, have I submitted every area of my life to the Lordship of Jesus? And if you've grown up in church or you've been around church for a while, it's tempting to just answer with a quick yes and move on. But if we will do the hard work of humbling ourselves before God and allowing the Holy Spirit to do his work in us, he will bring to our attention and he will reveal to us the areas of our lives that we desperately try to hold on to. The areas of our lives that we try to keep in the shadows. The areas of our lives that we, we don't want Jesus to be Lord over for one reason or another. And those areas that come to our mind as we ask this question and we let the Holy Spirit guide us to those answers, those are the things that we need to lay at the foot of the cross. And the last thing that I wanna tell you about the first half of chapter eight is that what we see here is that the gospel is unstoppable. As this scene with Simon draws to a close, we see that Peter and John head back to Jerusalem where the persecution continues and by some accounts even intensifies. But what we see as they go along their way is they preach the gospel in many Samaritan villages. And we can assume that as they preached the word of Jesus in these new areas, more and more people came to faith in Jesus. And this is a turning point in the book of Acts. No longer is faith in Jesus just for the Jews, but now it is for, it's for everyone. It's for you and it's for me. And it's for anybody else that we, that we agree with, disagree with, or don't even know. Because the gospel is for all people. And that should bring all of us great joy. Because without Acts, without the events of Acts chapter eight, without that turning point in all of history, none of us would be able to be in a life-giving relationship with Jesus. And if you're not in a life-giving relationship with Jesus, you can be today. I'm happy to talk to you, Joel, Paul, and others. We're, we're ready to, to talk to you about that today. But you need to know that it requires giving Jesus lordship over every area of your life. Gracious God, thank you for the events of Acts chapter eight. It shows us that your son came for all people. And God, we know that, that you are patient and you, are, you don't want anyone to perish. We are so grateful for that. God, I thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit here. And I pray, God, that as we go about our days and as we go about our weeks, that you will bring to our attention the areas of our life that we try to hold back from your Lordship. 
Because God, those are the areas we know that the enemy will try to draw us away from you. The source of life. God, we love you and we trust you. It's in your precious, holy, and powerful name that we pray. Amen.